Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Society Publishers' books are so green, you could eat them. We print all our books in North America, never overseas, on 100% post-consumer recycled paper. We've been a carbon-neutral company since 2006. Our employees are shareholders, and we are a certified B Corporation. At New Society, we care deeply about what we publish, but also about how we do business. Find out more at newsociety.com. Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. If you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. All right, we have reached the last episode in this month's focus on fixing the food system. In the last three weeks, we've talked about how co-op grocery stores offer real hope for transforming the supply and distribution of food by offering an alternative to the monopoly of grocery giants. We've covered the power and importance of indigenous food and land management, and we've also explored the joys and realities of growing your own food on a residential scale. So to round this all off, I had the pleasure of speaking to Meredith Lay, the author of The Ethical Meat Handbook. Meredith has worked as a farmer, butcher, chef, teacher, nonprofit executive director, consultant, and writer for the past 17 years, all in the pursuit of sustainable food. Now, the meat industry, in my opinion, is the epitome of what is broken in our food system and is a glaring example of the disconnect between humans and healthy natural systems. But Meredith shows us how we can reconnect with animals by treating every step of the process from raising to slaughter, butchery, and cooking with respect and care. Now in this interview, we start by acknowledging the broken and unhealthy state of meat consumption. We also go in depth about the environmental impacts, issues surrounding animal welfare, and the health problems of an imbalanced diet. Meredith then explains how a healthy and reverent relationship to animals and all their products could look like through real examples of ecological management of livestock systems, mindful slaughter, home butchery methods, and preservation through curing, fermentation, and cooking. This is one of the most holistic and nuanced perspectives on every aspect of meat that I've come across that even treats vegan and vegetarian perspectives on the topic with compassion and understanding. 
Meredith herself was vegan before getting involved with butchery and animal care, so I encourage you to listen through the full episode before jumping to conclusions on the angle that this interview takes. I also recognize that everything about meat, from animal care to diet, slaughter, and cooking, are very contentious topics at the moment, and I would love to hear from you about how you feel and relate to the opinions expressed in this session. So please leave respectful comments and feedback under the show notes for this episode, or any other episode for that matter, at AbundantEdge.com, or email me directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. Now before we get started, I'll warn you that I had a little trouble with my microphone, so my side of the interview is kind of muffled. But luckily, Meredith's side is much better, which is what really matters. So just a heads up, and now I'll turn things over to Meredith. Hey Meredith, thanks so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Now, I am really excited to get into this topic about talking about meat, uh, especially as a dietary choice, but also through all of the different ethical implications and how that flies in the face of a lot of what scientific uh, research and different opinions are going on out there. So what do you say we just jump right into the questions? That sounds great. All right, cool. So could you start by telling our listeners a little bit about your personal background and how you got to work in butchery and release cookbooks on ethical meat? Sure. Um, so my, I like to say I'm more at home in a room of farmers than any other person. So I'm a farmer, most, most first and foremost. And that's how I got into all of this. Um, I was raising, I was actually vegan um, as a dietary way of being. And I was farming like A to Z organic vegetables and cut flowers. Um, and I got some chickens, um, mostly at my ex-husband's um, behest um, because we were looking for their fertility benefit from their poop, right? Um, and we started um, harvesting them when they were ready to be harvested. And so um, that was kind of when I got into um, slaughtering animals on farm and um, trying to make use of all of the the parts. And by that point, I had started eating meat um, after some traveling around the world and being in different communities, particularly rural communities, where I was watching like whole cycle farms where animals were very much a part of the farm ecosystem. Um, and so, yeah, we started harvesting our chickens and, and just economically, we're having so much more success in the small foods um, economy or small farm economy with meat products than we were with vegetable products. Um, and so we started to specialize in um, pasture-based, like, you know, honestly raised meats, beef, pork, and poultry. Um, and then realized that we were paying over half of our gross profits to our processing facility or slaughterhouse. And so we decided to open a butcher shop. Um, so I learned how to butcher um, mostly as a business necessity. Um, but I've always been a cook. And so charcuterie and curing meats and fermentation was fascinating to me, the artfulness of it and, and the thriftiness of it. And so I guess you could just say that I went down the rabbit hole at that point. Um, and I had a little restaurant and a butcher shop in addition to the farm and unfortunately, uh, lost all of that due to a divorce. But when I got kind of away from being in the business, I realized that I had gained a lot of perspective, um, kind of on the supply chain, like what's missing from supply chains to make like small farms profitable and honest meat a reality. And so that's when I decided to, to write the first book. And that is a remarkable backstory. And I think that's how so many people who feel connected to 
raising and eating meat as a lifestyle would like to think that someone from a previous perspective of vegan or vegetarianism would come to that conclusion. Tell me a little bit about how that transition was for you. What were your primary motivations for a vegan lifestyle to begin with? And what made you comfortable uh, working with animals closely and eventually harvesting them? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think my, I mean, I was motivated towards a vegan diet for the same reasons a lot of people are. I mean, I was really aggravated at the political, the political like scene in the food industry. And, um, and I had a lot of empathy for the animals. I mean, the industrial, the way by which most of meat comes onto people's plates is, is really awful. I mean, in terms of animal welfare and in terms of, um, environmental justice and, um, like uh, social issues, worker safety. I mean, the list goes on and on. And it seemed like the most, uh, you know, active thing that I could do was check out of that system. Um, and that's like, I mean, that's something that the environmental movement from its earliest inception, I mean, I think I was always an environmentalist from like a ch as a child, always loving animals, always loving nature. Um, and, and so the earliest stages of the environmental movement really pushed up against meat production and meat consumption, um, like going all the way back to diet for a small planet and, and stuff like that. So it's a really obvious and easy choice for somebody who wants to make, you know, personal strides towards having a lower impact. Um, but I think when I traveled around the world and I went to, you know, went to the third world and, and saw kind of how people dealt with land and um, farming from an ecosystem perspective and really realized that the animal had a role there. And also that the choice towards veganism as a choice is really a privileged choice. Um, and so that kind of challenged me in a lot of ways um, because I am passionate from a social justice standpoint of how to make food equitable and, and just. And um, I realized that, you know, veganism really was not digging as deep as I would like to go um, in terms of trying to fix problems. And so that's when I started just sort of a more mindful inquiry, I would say into like, what is up with meat and what's going on with animals in the farm system. And, and so, I mean, I guess that's, I'll leave it there for now, but there, you know, that just started, shall we say, like opened a really big can of worms towards the work that I'm doing now. And, and, um, I have a lot of thoughts, I have a lot of thoughts about all all the angles of it at this point you know it turned out to be much more complex as anything is than i thought it would be i mean that's what i personally have been finding in my own life because i've worked very close with animals i've helped to harvest them and i, I also consider myself very passionate about uh, ecosystem conservation ethical eating and certainly the treatment and the welfare of animals and i'm glad that you mentioned so many of the different ways that you can approach this topic but also how you can sort of criticize it. And I mean, meat eating has come under fire from so many sides. Like you mentioned, people point to the environmental impacts of the industry, animal rights, and even the impact of a diet heavy in animal products in general. Right. In your opinion, does meat still have a prominent place in a modern diet? Um, well, I guess the word that I would, that I would scratch my head over is prominent. <laughs> um, I mean, I do think that, you know, there's a lot of evidence and, and certainly rancher experience towards regenerative models of high density grazing that are showing, yes, we can raise a large volume of animals, particularly ungulates, you know, on the ground and, and support, you know, a diet that's pretty high in protein. 
you know, but at the same time, like we are still struggling to see some of our, you know, alternative systems. And, and when I say alternative, like, I want to be really conscious that a lot of these are based in indigenous practices. Like, you know, a lot of the white people who are out there talking about this right now did not invent this stuff. Of course. Um, but, but so I just want to put that out there because I'm, I'm a white person I identify as white and I, I want to make sure to do that justice. But um, I think that, you know, there is still like a lot of pushback from the, you know, normal science community um, about some of those claims. And also like the supply chain is struggling to scale, you know, so even if we can, so pretend we can raise, you know, pretend we can bring bison back to the Great Plains and we can raise them in such numbers that, you know, to support, you know, the typical American diet of, of very high protein do we have slaughter facilities that can mindfully harvest all of those bison? You know, do we have distribution facilities? Do we even have the palate in the American public for that type of meat? You know, so there's lots of questions like on the whole supply chain level about how to make that work. And I think that the most like present way for us to approach this is like the eat better meat, eat less meat type of, you know, situation, unless you are a person experiencing enough privilege to be like super close to sources for honestly raised and like ethically slaughtered meat products, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I, I completely agree with that. It's been a difficult angle to approach because it's so contextual. It has so much to do with where you live, what you have yeah. access to, and whether or not you can find sources that meet that criteria that you were mentioning. Have you come to any personal conclusions? Obviously, where you live and what you have access to is going to be different than others. But certainly, can meat eating be justified at the scale that we're currently doing it? Mm, no, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that we can say that we can eat meat at the scale that we currently do and, and, be, and be sure that it's all being produced with the produced and, you know, processed with the greatest amount of integrity. Not at all. I, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, that's a perspective that a lot of people wouldn't expect from someone who's written extensively on this topic and has worked so closely with it. Do you feel like that's starting to change within the meat eating community to sort of find a middle ground between perhaps some more extreme exclusionary diets? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, um, like, I know that there's a lot of emphasis right now on like keto diets and really high protein diets, you know, and so, you know, with all of that, with it, all of that aside, like folks that are not on specialty diets like that, I find they have a lot of appreciation for, and they see the logic behind, like, what about smaller portion sizes, guys? Like, what about, you know, um, diversifying the types of protein that you eat? Um, and also like making the case for charcuterie where, you know, you experience protein in a completely different way and like bite size, really complex, um, sort of palate experiences. It, it really appeals to people and they understand, uh, you know, particularly chefs who are huge change makers right now are definitely, I think definitely changing, you know, the way protein presents on their menu and, and, you know, using a lot of offal and, and smaller portions and letting vegetables shine, you know, but I think also like making a claim that like we should eat less meat or that meat is really harmful is like, it's a way of really pigeonholing our problems and saying that like the way we do, of all the ways we do agriculture, like meat's the bad thing. But I think you and I both know that like the way we produce vegetables on a large scale is really horrifying too, <laughs> you know? And so, um, yeah, 
I mean, we're here to talk about meat, so we'll keep it on that. But I did want to throw that out there. You know, it's like if everybody decreases the amount of meat they eat, it's not like we all of a sudden solved, you know, the problem of massive loss of topsoil or like water contamination. Yes, exactly. There is a much more systemic problem of how all of our food is produced. And meat is just one of the easiest ones to point at because of how many steps are in the process. It's not just planting uh, maintenance and then harvest, there's an actual lifestyle that we can anthropomorphize to a certain degree. And I mean, that leads me to the aspect that many people are, are frankly most uncomfortable about. How do you view the slaughter process and answer people who argue that killing animals is unethical? Yeah, that's a big one. That's perhaps the biggest one. I mean, I think that like people who feel that animals, like slaughtering animals at all is unethical. I'm not sure that there's a lot of conversation there. Like I have not experienced that there's a lot of like give and take within that conversation. It's just like, it's pretty much a stone wall um, from my experience. But um, my, my coming to with this has been based on being a witness, you know, um, and seeing you know, the most, the most, um, mindful way, shall we say that we can, that we can harvest animals to stun it first. So to render completely, you know, insensible to pain and then actually make the killing cut or, or stab or whatever it's going to be. Um, and my experience with that is that it is, you know, surprisingly peaceful and it's not associated with the violence that a lot of people think death inherently holds um and and so being a witness to that and also being a witness to humans who are dying i've i've noticed quite frequently that dying beings are some of the most peaceful beings among us and that it's the living who bring the fraught um the you know the fraught atmosphere to the dying process so you know that leads into a lot of other things about like the role that death plays in our culture and the mentality that we have around it um and also the fact that a lot of people who, who really cringe at the thought of animal slaughter and animal, you know, um, animal eating are pretty removed from land and life cycle processes. So the life death life cycle of farming is really foreign um, to those folks. And, and understandably so, you know, as we urbanize rapidly. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I I have a lot of ways that I, that I come to the table for that kind of conversation. Um, I've also had experience with, you know, folks in the vegan community who have experienced, you know, trauma in their own lives and towards their own bodies. And that fuels a lot of the emotional discontent around animal slaughter. And so it can be really loaded, you know, I mean, that's just a few examples, but um, yeah, I, I think that like, the reason I've been using the word mindful a lot is not only because it like speaks to people right now, it's very in vogue, but also because it is about like being really present for all the things that come up for you at a moment of death and, and asking yourself like, what, what of these things actually belong to this animal? What of these things just belong to me? Mm. And that's an and, important question for any context of death, regardless of whether it's something you're going oh, to be yeah. consuming or just you have a different relationship with. Yeah. I mean, even if like, you know, if you're experiencing the death of a loved one, even like a human animal, like, you know, being in that space and understanding like the fear that you're bringing and the, and the, um, sort of the solemn solemnity that you experience when you're faced with the fact that you will also die, you know, like all of these things 
you know, come up for people and, and, you know, in a moment, like it's, it's very natural to have a fight or flight response, but if you can sit in that, you know, and, and sort of rifle through those emotions and understand what you're bringing to the situation, it can lead to really profound growth and, and experience of your humanity, you know? And I think that, you know, ethical slaughter, what have you, mindful slaughter, as I prefer to call it today, is it becomes a really great way to explore, you know, not just issues of meat eating, but also issues of like, how are we in conversation with, you know, the earth and with the land? And how are we in conversation with ourselves and our own egos? You know, um, the question of whether or not to eat meat is one that goes back, you know, almost as far as written history, you know, but most of the cultures around the world that have had a land ethic over time have consumed animals and have had like a spiritual as well as an ecological consciousness of, of the slaughter process, you know, and it's really only, you know, cultures from conquest and, and cultures that, you know, have high urban or removal from the land that have come apart from the death process and don't really understand it or have space for it. And that's absolutely been my experience and observation too. And of course, it's an overgeneralization and people come to their dietary choices and their conclusions on the ethics of this topic from many, many different ways. But I agree that usually the largest removal from accepting of how uh, meat fits into diets and the relationship with animals is really only prevalent in societies that are very removed from the actual process of all of their food. And I found this, you know, across the board, I've myself dabbled with uh, vegetarian diets, I haven't gone as far as veganism. And I agree with so many of the ethics of how people arrive to these choices. But it requires a certain amount of removal from the process of ecosystems of cultivation of the life cycles of a lot of what we interact with. And if you're only consuming it sort of as a as a post secondary product, I, I find it difficult to to relate to people, not just on the meat issue, but also making connections on how all of the rest of our food is produced and consumed as an extension. Um, and like you, like you mentioned, all throughout history, many, many cultures, especially land-based cultures, have eaten some sort of animal protein for a, a proportion of their sustenance, certainly not in the way that we are currently eating it in the Western world and, and on these quantities. But there is a very deep history and connection that is not a disrespectful one in nearly all of these traditional cases. Right. And also just the sense that, like, I mean, Western Western civilization place, places such an enormous emphasis on the individual, right? The preciousness of the individual. Of course. Um, and that's not something that herd animals do, right? Nor Nor lots of other cultures. And so I think, you know, the way that I come at it, like, I don't, I'm not speaking about this with any sort of admonition towards those who, who gravitate towards a plant-based diet or like I, you know, my experience and and while many people in that community have gone out of their way to, to upset me and, and to, um, and to target me, um, I've really found um, a lot of compassion in my, um, in my journey with, with the vegan community, because I can see, I can, I can really understand all of the issues and see why that feels like a really um, tangible choice. And I can also see a lot of the trauma and emotional um, disruption that informs that choice for, for some of the um, most vehement people within that community. And so I think, you know, I think, like you said, it's very personal. 
Um, but my work's my work is like trying to focus on the folks who have already made the choice to eat meat, right? So saying of like course. because of this problem we have, like we're over consuming, like rare muscle commodity. We the you know the normalized system is of like Big Macs and whatnot is like really horrific for the environment as well as for people and animals. And so um, recognizing that like if those people kind of see the textured situation before us and make a change, then that will have more of an impact than the people who don't eat meat, you know, doing whatever it is that they do. So yeah, I completely agree. And I think you and I are kind of on this scale of we probably have more in common with our priorities and our ethics with many people who have abandoned meat altogether than many people who do it without, um, without care for the process. And I agree, talking to those people who have already kind of made an extreme choice in the other direction are much more likely to have uh, a real impact on the industry at large, which I think is one of your main motivations, no? Right, totally. Um, so, yeah, and then, like, once you start looking at them, if you have the person, the butcher, the chef, the, the, you know, the abattoir, the retail person, and you start to look, like, blow it out and look at the supply chains, you know, and look at systems rather than, you know, the small, you know, the small pieces, then you can really sort of see like a ton of different ways to attack the issue that are very approachable to the everyday citizen, you know, and so that's super empowering, right? Like, oh, wow, I can like, I can address this without completely checking out from it. And I can address it from several different starting points. I love that approach. Yeah. Now here, let's switch gears just a second and maybe tackle the last really controversial aspect of meat eating in the modern day. And that's the effect on our bodies and the dietary repercussions of eating certainly as much meat as is prevalent in our society in the United States or let's say in the West in general. Where do you stand on that and how do you see it as, I would say, a dietary system and its impact on our health? That's such a big question. Um, Well, I certainly think that like the standard or mainstream sort of dietary nutrition science is totally wacko. Um, I mean, what I've seen is that it tends to pretend that everybody is built the same way, number one, and number two is heavily corporatized. And so it is going to recommend and favor things that are might actually not be good for for human health at all. Um, what I understand about like meat consumption is that it's highly contextual. Like you said, there's going to be people, I mean, I know a woman in, in my own life who has such severe chronic illness that the only way she's been able to feel better is on like a really high protein diet and relatively raw protein. Um, that being said, she's also, um, I would say she's like postmenopausal. And research is showing that, like, as as a person ages, the protein, the ratio of protein in their diet should increase because of certain hormone pathways and the way protein is processed in the body. So, if you want to like say anything general, I think it would be that the younger a person is, the higher amount of carbohydrates via legumes and vegetables that they should be having in their diet, as well as fats, right? So that kind of brings in animals as well. Um, and then as you age, like the level of actual protein increasing. Um, so, I mean, that would be like the simplest way that I could answer your question. Sure. And it's a very complex issue, like you said. And I really like what you mentioned at first is the assumption that everybody's body or everybody's chemical makeup or dietary or even lifestyle choices are going to be conducive to right. a, a mass marketed idea of an uh, idealized diet is completely unrealistic. 
And I think from what I've heard in so many different spheres and, and what you've repeated here, you really do need to take the time to figure out what works for you, your body. And, and that might even fluctuate with what you're going through on, on a rather short term basis. Totally. Yeah. And, um, and like, um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, we don't just make decisions about what we eat based on what, what is healthy for us. Right. Like, like a lot of people eat what they eat because of emotional reasons. Like you need comfort or a lot of people of eat because of environmental reasons. I know that I make decisions about what, what I eat because of what I know. Right. You know, and, and I have the privilege and the comfort in order to do that. So, you know, if you were to ask me whether I would prefer to get my fat from, you know, fatty fish or from, you know, red meat, you know, then I would probably say fatty fish, but I know that there are like some serious issues with sustainable fishing, especially when I live in the mountains of North Carolina, right? Yeah, in terms yeah. of distribution of that fatty fish and in terms of availability of the fish within the population, right? Um, and like the methods by which that fish is being caught, you know? Um, and so, but what's available to me and what makes sense is for me to be eating like grass fed, you know, um, honestly raised and, you know, mindfully slaughtered beef, right. If I want, you know, some heavy saturated fat and some, you know, some red meat. And so, you know, it's like, you know, if I'm given the choice to eat, you know, locally raised pork that I know how it lived and died, but I know that it was fed GMO feed, uh, or go and buy a certified organic pork chop, you know, that I have no idea where it came from or how far it traveled or how the animal lived or died, you know, I'm probably going to choose the local. <laughs> and that's me, you know, that's my personal decision because of what I know. Um, but my decision is not necessarily based on what I believe is best for my health, because I don't think that ingesting, you know, genetically modified foods isn't necessarily the best idea. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a very complex issue. And, and I love the nuances that you approach this from and, and the admission that the amount of knowledge or awareness that someone has, and, and also the privilege and the resources that they have access to could be the deciding factor of the, the dietary choices that they make. Right. And what I say often, find myself saying often when I'm in like debates about this, and like whether it's a good idea to eat meat full stop, you know, it's like, well, honestly, sometimes I feel like it would be totally fine if all the privileged people decided not to, <laughs> you know what sure. I mean? But, but like, you know, there's a lot of folks who don't have that option of cherry picking what they eat at all, you know? Um, so we've got to take that into consideration for, for certain. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk a little bit now because we, we've kind of dissected all of the controversial aspects of the meat industry and meat in diet at this point. Let's start taking more of an approach towards aspirations and what uh, an ethical meat-based diet can look like. So what does ethical meat specifically mean to you and how do you go about finding it? Mm. Um, well, ethical meat is it's summed up by a good life, a good death, a good butcher, and a good cook. Um, and that there's a lot within that, but that's the quick and dirty definition. Um, and you, you know, would want to, the best way to go about getting it is to establish relationships, right? So, um, if you have the ability to raise animals yourself, that's, you know, a great way to get it. Um, if you can establish relationships with people who are raising it, then that's another great way to get it. So farmer's market, online buying clubs, cooperative groceries, um, and stuff like that. 
right? Um, so right off the bat, it's very clear that ethical meat is harder and harder to access, you know, um, when you can't prioritize food choice, right? If you don't have the privilege to prioritize food choice. But for now, that's, that's the way, that's the easiest way to go about it. Certainly. So let's talk about your personal hierarchy then of what you look for when buying meat, because access and different factors are going to be different for everyone. What would you prioritize first? What would I prioritize first? Um, Well, I guess, I mean, if I'm out at a restaurant, um, I will absolutely ask how the animal lived and died. Um, So I think that that's, and if the person can't tell me, then I'll just avoid it. Right. Um, So that'll be my first, I guess my first question is, and, and sometimes if I have a relationship with the person who raised it, then I'll know how it lived and I'll know how it died, you know? And after that, I guess it would be what it was fed. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, I would probably, you know, use my sensory cues to look at it and see what I felt about it, especially if it was the raw piece of meat, you know, is the, does it have good color? Does it look like there's, there was stress in the animal, but again, this is all based on the knowledge that I have. Right. And I, and in my classes and stuff, I, I seek to teach people like look for speckles in the meat, look for oxidation, look for, you know, if you're able to butcher your own meat, which I recommend as many people as can possibly do try to get into it, at least on, on a rudimentary level, you can start to recognize signs of stress, um, in the muscles and in the fat, um, in the glands of the animal. Um, and so you can build an awareness of what really quality meat, really quality fat looks like, um, what the joints feel like, um, and then you're on your way, right? You can kind of sniff it out right right away. Well, so if you recommend more people get involved with butchery, what would be the first steps and sort of a transition into processing meat yourself? I would say the first steps are to pick up any book that teaches you butchery and it doesn't have to be whole animal butchery, but most of the books that do this will start with the whole carcass. But it got it needs to take you down to subprimal level at some point. So what I mean when I say that is when an animal is slaughtered, it's usually, you know, taken from its whole state into quarters or halves, and then it goes down into cuts called primals, and then it goes from primals to subprimals, and then from subprimals into retail cuts, which is what most people are used to buying at the farmers market at the grocery. And so anybody, truly anybody with a knife on a cutting board can start to dig in with subprimal cuts. So these are like muscle groups. Um, And most of them will fit on a standard like 18 inch cutting board, right? Um, And you can, with the exception of some beef subprimals, because beef is large, um, but you can get subprimals from a local butcher shop, from a farmer's market. Lots of farmers can set it up with their abattoir. Um, to get you that whole cut. And not only will you pay less price per pound on that whole thing, because the farmer won't have to pay the butcher to cut it down for you. um, But then you can also probably get more meals out of that one piece than you would if you bought each of those steaks, what have you, you know, solo. And I mean, for me, some of the the benefits of, of working with subprimal cuts like this is that there's so many things that are thrown away before you get it as a retail cut, like you mentioned, yeah. which are super useful. And you can turn them into all kinds of other products, which extend the usefulness of what you bought originally, don't you think? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, I did an article for Mother Earth News last year that was called Beef Subprimal Butchery. And there was a, 
you know, there was an example in there. If you get a top sirloin subprimal, you can produce like three months worth of steaks, you know, I mean, I don't know how much meat, you know, we're assuming people eat, but we're not assuming that they eat steaks every night. Um, but you can get like a decent, you know, a suite of meals for your family for a much lower price per pound than if you went out and bought all those steaks, you know, one by one. And the process is very simple for breaking down that subprimal um, into, into usable cuts for the family. And you also have options, right? Like you don't have to cut it one certain way. Like you could produce roasts as opposed to steaks or larger grilling cuts as opposed to smaller servings. So it gives you a lot of creativity and it empowers you to make more flexible choices in the kitchen, you know, in addition to the bang for the buck, right? Well, that's exactly one of the things that I love about this is because a lot of people complain that eating uh, ethically raised meat or organic meat or, or locally raised meat is so much more expensive. And, and as it should be, because there's a much more care, there's a lot more or there are much higher quality feeds going into the process. And, and people need to be paid well for this. But if you want to offset that cost and still make it affordable to an average person, you just have to get involved at an earlier stage of the processing. Right, right. So a quick ex explanation of that is like, so the probably the highest cost in small scale meat production. So if you're already in the camp of being like, okay, I'm going to buy my meat from a small scale farmer, um, then one of the highest costs that that farmer is incurring is the slaughter and processing fees that they pay a third party usually to do. Um, and you know, one, there's one flat fee usually for you know actually killing the animal, and then there is a per pound price for what we call cut and wrap processing. So that's taking that animal from you know, the hanging weight, so the weight of the animal without the blood and the organs once it's killed, down into all those retail cuts. So if you buy as whole as possible, then the farmer as a business person cuts out those cut and wrap costs and, and can then turn you those more whole, whole portions, turn them over to you at a lower cost per pound or should be able to. And that's another thing is that you might have to advocate for, your, for yourself a little bit. You know, if the farmer doesn't know that you're savvy, you might be buying your subprimals or whatever for the same price that you would be buying your ribeyes for. So you definitely need to be, you know, making sure like, Hey man, I scratch your back and scratch mine. You're avoiding some business costs here. Like how about you turn over the reward of that a little bit to your customer. And you know, most people who are involved in small scale alternative agriculture movements are definitely into like, let's all work together to make this possible. Um, so it's not a difficult conversation to have if it's something that you're committed to. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it seems like every part of these processes that you're advocating for at some point really come back to getting involved with the community around the production, the raising, the processing of this. And the more you get involved with that, you'll save money. You'll also create relationships. You'll help uh, along with the quality control. And, and so many other benefits come from it's almost a shift in lifestyle not so much just a way of looking at <laughs> reducing costs on meat. Oh, totally. And the other thing is like for people who are in super urban areas or who don't feel like they have like, you know, I know there's a lot of issues with like where farmers markets are located and the way that they're organized in terms of them being accessible to everybody. Um, and so there's lots of ways that people can team up, you know, to make ethical meat available to themselves and their loved ones. Like, forming little buying groups and saying, okay, well, I can't make use of a half of a, sh of a lamb on my own, but maybe me and two of my neighbors can do it. Um, and 
you know, we can decide how we want it cut. We can buy it more whole or we can get it cut all the way down, you know, and, and go home each with the portions that we like, you know, maybe, maybe the folks in the group who want to eat the lesser used cuts get to pay a bit lower price than the people who just want the loin chops, you know, and the, and the rack and the leg, you know, which is the stuff that's easy to cook. And so getting creative you know, about how we capitalize good meat production and how we purchase, you know, ethically raised meats instead of just expecting the systems to be in place for us to go and pick it up um, is a really great way to sort of check into the system and also get involved when you don't feel like you have a huge amount of financial resources, um, you know, right, right available for this. Speaking of those financial resources, one of the things that you write passionately about is charcuterie and a lot of people consider different cured and preserved meats to be quite expensive, especially when they're high quality and, you know, used high quality ingredients. But I know from reading some of your work that this is actually a very simple process. It just takes a little bit of education. Can you give us a little overview about how someone might get introduced into cured and processed meats? Oh, totally. Um, Well, it's all over the internet. Charcuterie is very in vogue right now. It's very trendy. Um, so there's a thousand and one or more recipes online for how you can start making your own bacon, um, how you can get, and I would say that that's probably the most successful thing to do is like, go ahead and try some kind of whole muscle cured product. So we're talking about bacon or brazeola or guanciale or some of the, you know, some, some lardo, some of the things that folks might, might've some words folks might've heard before. But all that entails, and even just making your own deli ham for like lunches for your kids, it's a very simple process of just getting salt on meat to draw down the water in it. And then, you know, after a prescribed amount of time, you're going on to either roasting that item, smoking that item, you know, baking it, or if you want to get a little more advanced, fermenting it. Um, And so, yeah, I have a huge soapbox about like charcuterie and its gourmet status, Um, Because really, it comes from extremely industrious people all over the world who are dealing with extremely meager circumstances um, and have to make the most of the animal and have to do it without ready refrigeration, without ready fire. Um, And so this is like, I mean, if we want to get down and dirty, this is poor people's food, right? And the fact that we've like brought it up to this thing that's completely inaccessible, to me, feels really ridiculous. Um, So... A lot of my classes are about giving that skill back to the people and opening the doors for them um, because it's actually totally doable for any any home cook. I love that you mentioned that. I mean, just like you mentioned with the, this being sort of poor people's food, it came out of the, the needs for uh, preserving things for a longer period of time, using the minimal possible resources, not having access to refrigeration, all these things. And I mean, in so many cuisines that I've sampled and been a part of around the world in my travels, that's where the most rich, most beautiful and, and well sort of taken care of and processed food comes from is, is the, the need, the, <laughs> the preservation process. And the appreciation. Fermentation. Yeah. Exactly. And it, like you said, it has been put on this sort of elevated platform. But if people rediscover the origins, this is something that we can really reclaim as food for the people. That's right. And it's also something that there's a lot of room to play with. So, you know, all respect to tradition, you know, there's some beautiful, beautiful things that people in the old world have done and there's no reason to change them. 
But at the same time, if you master the basic technique, you can really take off with a lot of creative flavor profiles and really make it your own. And a lot of chefs are waking up to this right now in terms of how they incorporate, you know, animal proteins and charcuterie or via charcuterie into their menus. It's like, wow, I can really jump off and jump off big with, you know, sausage making or with uh, meat fermentation. And, and not only that, but I can really impact the way that people experience protein you know, instead of it being this like huge eight ounce portion in the center of the plate, it becomes this much more nuanced, much more complex, um, you know, sort of specialized experience. Um, and I think that that could really do wonders for, you know, the, the problem of meat in our culture, you know? I completely agree. Now, let's talk a little bit about integrating animals into your garden. I want to talk more about the aspirational aspects of integrating animals in a healthy way and what it could mean if we were managing from your experience in working with animals directly and how they integrate in with a holistic homestead. Yeah, well, they integrate in beautifully, um, specifically if somebody's already on the path of trying to be as self-reliant as possible, then the animal brings a lot of really awesome attributes to that. Um, and particularly, especially, I mean, gardeners are mostly working on smaller scales. So we're talking like poultry, um, chickens, geese, ducks, um, quail, pheasants, guineas, animals like this. Um, and then also rabbits are really good um, animals for incorporating into the homestead or garden. And even though rabbit is not a food that lots of people consume, it's certainly on the rise. Um, it's got twice as much protein as chicken um, and it's leaner. Um, and so that appeals to a lot of folks. Um, and then obviously the fertility benefits of the animals are huge. So you can be making compost or having the animals pooping directly onto, you know, ground that you want to turn over. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of applications. You can go even further when you do your harvest and you can be making your own blood meal, you can be making your own feather meal. Um, you can obviously get a lot more meals out of, you know, home raised animals because you've got all of it to deal with, you know? So making pâtés, making really rich socks, um, in addition to eating like the skeletal muscle that you're used to eating in terms of roasts and steaks and whatnot. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I've, uh, listeners of this podcast will remember through all of the different regenerative roundtable sessions in previous months with me talking with my former business colleagues on the homestead that we founded in rural Guatemala, just how much time and focus we put into integrating the animal systems in with the larger production methods. Now, we were only on about a half an acre of land, oh, so wow. we were very confined with what we could do. The goats had to go and graze off on pastures up in the mountains, but we had uh, chickens and ducks rotating through the system, not only in the pens, but also in different areas of the garden and the production areas as well. And that's something I've been very passionate about since I had more firsthand experience of how it works into a mixed-use farm and not just focusing entirely on one of those enterprises and right. all of the different byproducts that not only add fertility to the system, but majorly cut down on work. I mean, we had it at the point where the goat pen only needed to be cleaned out about once every month, month and a half because of having yeah. the chickens in there oxygenating the compost, cleaning off uh, the and the goats directly, they'd often just perch on their bodies, even the little ones. It was really yeah. cute. And also eating the parasites and the bugs out of the bedding below just to keep yeah. the whole system much, much cleaner. Totally. And like it used to be, I mean, 
I don't know that you couldn't necessarily raise some of those larger animals on the small scale, but I mean like Korean natural farming and a lot of these approaches are, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can use like microbial teas and sprays to really manage animal pens on the small scale, particularly like even pigs, um, like the no smell piggery for, for Korean natural farming. If people are interested in this, like look it up. Um, but it's all about working with, you know, indigenous microorganisms in order to like neutralize odors and um, speed composting of, of, you know, animal waste. Um, and then really getting the animal super integrated into, you know, eating slugs or, or, you know, pest control, other pest control applications. Um, yeah. yeah it's and fascinating and it's dynamic. It's a living system. So there are always, you know, things to monitor, to tweak. That in the, it can be very hard, you know, it, it takes can. It is a lot of work, <laughs> yeah. but it's very rewarding. And I really valued the relationships that we built with the animals even though we knew that uh, at a point at the end they were going to be harvested. And uh, that does a lot for an understanding of the life cycles of production methods like that and how though there is a, you know, a sharp cutoff of their useful life in those systems, taking care of every step of their life cycle in between and making sure that they're, they're very well taken care of, they're healthy, they're happy in the process really connects you to every aspect of you know, how you're producing and how you're eating. Right. And that the animal is fulfilling a role in the ecosystem, right? Like right. it's not, it's not just there for us to consume it, right? Not it's there because it has a unique capability. You know, your goats can eat invasive plants. How amazing is that? Right. If we continue to disturb, you know, ecosystems at the rate that we are as humans, like what is the being that can remain in conversation with the earth? Well, the herbivore, right? So how beautiful is that that these animals have a role and how wonderful it is for us to give them that niche, right? In addition to them being food for us. Indeed. Now, to kind of wrap up here, can you talk a little bit about, from your opinion, what's the ideal interaction between human and animals look like and how can we sort of transform our current meat system from an industrial and exploitative one? What might it look like if this were a healthier industry at, at large? Yeah, that's a difficult question to answer at the scale that it needs to be answered. But I would say ideally, you know, it would look like, pros first of all, it would look like prosperous farmers, you know, who are able to make a living on the farm um, and set up the systems on their farm in a way that made their farm a thriving ecosystem, right? And if that happens, then supply chains, I believe, would develop for um, meat to reach the people in a mindful way. Um, but right now, it's like we have a lot of other stuff that we have to address <laughs> um, sure. in order for that system to happen to scale. I think people of privilege right now can like get off of the you know the podcast or whatever and go home and start doing something, whether it's buying differently, eating differently, cooking differently, eating different things, you know, to, to start making changes in the system. But I think certainly plugging into farmer communities and making sure that there's a solid framework for prosperous rural communities is certainly um, probably like the missing link um, in this situation. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that goes to reinforce so much of what you already said. It no matter where you're coming from, your level of privilege and whatnot, the more you can get involved in the process, in the life cycle, in the quality control of these, the more you can engage with it 
in whatever you have access to at the moment is, is a step in the right direction and, and is something can, that can grow from there. Right. Absolutely. And then I think, you know, if you're interested in going a step further, it's like maybe try digging into some policy changes, right? Um, maybe try digging into some, into some things that make um, good food more accessible to more people. Maybe try digging into some of the regulation around, you know, um, animal processing or CAFOs. Um, but that's sort of next level. <laughs> that's sort it of- is. It's a whole new can of worms, but you're yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So before I let you go, Meredith, could you tell us a little bit about how listeners can get in contact with you, learn more about the courses that you offer, and educate themselves further on ethical meat? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my website is Food, M-E-R-E-L-E-I-G-H-F-O-O-D.com. Um, that's also my social media handle at Merrily Food. So I'm most often on Instagram and somewhat on Facebook. Um, I'm so horrible at Twitter. So if you go there, you won't find much. Um, and my books are The Ethical Meat Handbook and Pure Charcuterie. Two books available on my website, also available anywhere that you buy books. Um, and those are great ways if, if people feel super invested into this to invest in the books, read them. You know, and you don't have to do everything, but pick out a couple of things that you want to start, you know, um, and I'm available, you know, I am answering Instagram messages all the time. My phone number, my voice message is on my website. If people want to call and leave a message, I will definitely try to get back. I'm all about interface about this. Um, so uh, I'm not turning anybody away, at least not yet. <laughs> Fantastic. Those are some great resources there. I personally have really enjoyed the books that you've put out in, in the ones that I've been able to skim through. And I can't wait to start implementing some of the fantastic advice. And more than anything, those the recipes in there are incredible. Um, when is the second edition of the Ethical Meat Handbook coming out? I think I just got a notification from Amazon that it's dropping in February of 2020. So it seems like, yeah. Well, maybe first thing, first thing next year. Awesome. Well, that's something to look forward to as well. So Meredith, thank you again so much for taking the time. I really hope that we can reconnect again and explore this topic further um, and, and just stay in touch. I'm, I'm really excited to see how this continues to grow and the impact that you're having on the industry at large. Awesome. Thanks so much, Oliver. Great speaking with you. Hey, my pleasure. I right, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at abundantedge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.